Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Uh, today we have a super cool podcast. I'm talking to Brian Miller, the CEO of Easy China Logistics. Welcome, Brian. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate you having me on the show. I say super cool because Brian is the first guest we have had from mainland China. So he is going to give us a bunch of different perspectives. First of all, Easy China Logistics helps e-commerce sellers distribute products all around the world. So I'm fascinated to learn a little bit about how products do move around. And then uh, since Brian is sitting kind of right in the epicenter of where the coronavirus happened, we'll talk a little bit about that. And I also want to learn a bit about how he made it from uh, town in Connecticut over to Shenzhen in China, which is, well, actually, we'll talk geography too. I think that would be useful. So Brian, just to get to know you as we first get started here, love to hear one of your favorite sales books or sales related books of all time, and maybe one of the takeaways you got from it. One of my favorite sales books is How to Win Friends and Influence People. It was written by Dale Carnegie a long time ago, I believe in the early 1900s. And it was one of the only books that I really remember very vividly when I studied at university. And one of the biggest takeaways for me is just he really went into like how to, you know, make people feel good and build those relationships and build trust. And that's what I do in my business every day because we're kind of the backbone of a lot of businesses. And so trust in our ability to distribute, you know, our customers' products uh, effectively is huge. And so that book definitely has helped me out in my own business to build trust between my customers. I have to imagine that the third-party logistics trade inside of China is intensely competitive. Is that a fair statement? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we all know that China generally has has a fiercely competitive market, especially for on price, right? Um, and especially in logistics, margins are quite low. And so providing a lot of value and services and building that trust that people know that, you know, when I say I'm going to ship it somewhere in the world, that they're going to get their products is incredibly important. And that's kind of one of the advantages that we have in China is that I am an American. I was born and raised in Connecticut. And so it gives us the ability to form that trust between our foreign clients much easier than a lot of our Chinese competitors have. So I'd say that's one of our definite competitive advantages. Yeah, the term third-party logistics or 3PL, many people are familiar with the term but may not actually be familiar with what it means. So just, I guess as a way of practical description, what's an example of a customer and what they would request from you? And walk us through a little bit of that supply chain and where a company like yours fits in that in those linkages. There's a lot of people in the world that make products and they have their own brands. And oftentimes they do go to China to manufacture their products. And so when they work with that factory and develop their own custom product, after they finish manufacturing, they need to find a way to distribute their products around the world. That's basically where we come in. And after the product is manufactured, we take the product from that factory, we bring it to our warehouse, and then we help that customer either ship it by sea or air to their local destination country to another warehouse in the U.S., or shipping it directly from China to their end customer. And the 3PL, third-party logistics, the term is a third party that helps people manage their logistics and operation. And a lot of people, let's say, outsource it to companies like us because we can gain a lot of scale 
in our ability to ship products through carriers that we work with very frequently. And we're able to get better discounts than the average company. And we are able to pass those discounts on to them when we help them ship. And so sometimes using a company like us is even more competitive than if a company were to try to do it on their own. And that's a big reason why people use third-party logistic companies. Got it. So unless you're some monster company like Nike, who is going to fill container after container after container, it pays to be able to combine some of those smaller orders together so you can get those bulk discounts. Exactly. Yeah, you hit the nose on the head. Exactly. So we would never like be able to serve a company like Nike or Walmart or Target or any of those large corporations because they run all those operations on their own. But smaller to medium sized companies, they often don't have the scale to do that. And that's where companies like me or our company comes in to support those companies. So you're exactly right. Can you tell us where Shenzhen is located and maybe in reference to some other names that we've been hearing lately, certainly Wuhan, where the coronavirus is believed to have started, would be useful to get some of those reference points? Yeah, sure. So our company is located in Shenzhen, and Shenzhen is in the southern part of China, actually right on the border of Hong Kong. So I think a lot of probably the listeners have heard of Hong Kong or at least kind of have an idea of where it might be. And we're the border city to Hong Kong. In regards to our distance to Wuhan, we are due south of Wuhan, about a thousand miles away. So Wuhan is a a very central city within China, and there's a lot of actual travel that goes through Wuhan. And if you are to go north from Wuhan, you would get Beijing. So Beijing is the very northern part of China, closer to where uh, North Korea and Japan would be on that type of latitude think about China and most of the big cities, you'll realize that actually most of them are on the coast, on the eastern side. As China became a larger manufacturer in the world, a lot of its products needed to be, of course, made in China and then exported. Basically, a lot of the factories started sprouting up along the coast where you could build ports, right, and where you can get product out of China. And so those ports became critical for China to become this large, you know, manufacturing powerhouse. You know, the factories were basically built around those port sides as China became what it is today. And so that's why you see such large cities and such a large population density along that coast. Now, in recent years, those cities have become ever more expensive. I mean, from a living perspective and from a wage perspective. So we have seen slowly over the past few years that some factories have moved more inland to save cost. So we have seen that trend, but that's kind of the main reason why there's so much population density on that coast. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Canton Fair. Have you ever heard of that fair in China? No, I have not. Okay. Yeah, it's one of it is the largest product sourcing fairs in the world. And it's where people from all over the world come into Guangzhou, which is a southern city in China, to meet with manufacturers and to develop product made in China. And this same city, Guangzhou, was also the trading hub back hundreds of years for China. So it's almost as if China has kept that tradition of this southern coastal port city, that it's been a trading hub throughout history, even till today. So if anyone hears about the Canton Fair or has been to it, it has a very long, long history. What time of year does that happen? Is that yet another example? I would assume what's happening here is happening there, which is any large gatherings have been canceled. Yeah. So every year they have it twice a year. They have it in April and then again in October. 
they're trying to start an online version of it in June. I don't know how that will go, but that seems to be kind of the trend everywhere for big gatherings. And we'll see if the world is healthy enough, let's say, in terms of the virus to be able to hold it in October. I'm skeptical that they'll be able to, but we'll see. Yeah, you're a couple months ahead of where we are in the U.S. What should we expect? What is it like? Are you able to go outside? Are you? What's the same? What's different before December and now? Yeah, so I'll give you guys just a little bit of a kind of a short timeline to just give you an idea of where we are today. In December, a lot of the news outlets here kind of were reporting a virus that was unknown, but was also SARS-like. So in 2003, in southern China, there was an outbreak of SARS. And they, you know, kind of talk about that because it's easy for people here in China to relate to what that was. At the time, they said that people shouldn't be concerned because they didn't see significant human transmission, which we obviously know now is very, very transmissible. And in the end of December, uh, the government made a formal announcement on December 31st about the coronavirus. So that's when the Chinese government acknowledged it. And starting in January, we started to see the first week of January where about half of the people in China were wearing masks already. So for me, living you know over a thousand miles away, it's a bit of a scary feeling when before you know it, we hear about this virus. And within two weeks, we saw that almost the whole population was wearing masks. After this, we saw uh, a lot of the public places in China to start doing temperature checks. So if I went into a supermarket, if I went into my own apartment, when I went to my warehouse, they had roadblocks on the road where they would stop everyone and check everyone's temperature in the car. And if you were in a taxi, they also checked the taxi driver. Malls, all the doors were closed and you can only enter in one door and you had to get your temperature checked before you got in. Kind of mid to end January, we're already seeing temperature checks being very common. And by the end of January, we saw Wuhan, which was the origination of where the virus started in China, be locked down. So they locked down the whole city of 10 million people, something unprecedented that we've never seen before. What does a shutdown mean in Wuhan? I would assume people have to be able to go out and get food with some limitations. Yeah, with some limitations. So generally, the you know the Chinese New Year started on January 25th. So this was right starting one of the biggest holidays in China. You can compare it to the Christmas and the New Year for Americans. During this time, the government said people shouldn't travel and they canceled all of the events or celebrations during the new year. And so this is a big deal because this is one of the most important times of the year. And they also told everyone to stay inside. So most people kind of stayed inside. They didn't go out. And as infections increased, I mean, I can't speak specifically from Wuhan, but at least in Shenzhen where I am, which is even very far away, they would lock down areas where there were transmissions. So if you were close to a transmission or someone that was confirmed infected, they would basically quarantine off that area and give you tickets. And those tickets allowed you to go out and buy food. So I had a friend that was very close to a bunch of confirmed cases in our city, and he got two tickets a week. And he could use those tickets to basically give to the uh, guard at his uh, apartment complex and leave the apartment complex to buy food. And so we did see as extreme measures as people either, you know, only being able to go out a few days a week or not at all in places like Wuhan. So it was very strict and extreme compared to what we would probably see in the U.S. 
Wow. And is that still going on where when they identify particular cases in apartment buildings or in areas, that sort of ticket system still exists? Yeah, they will shut down an area and then they will give everyone coronavirus tests to check the whole population. And usually they require that area to go into 14-day quarantine. You know, there's a lot of still unknowns about the whole virus, but what's been kind of a standard known thing is that, you know, between one and 14 days, they say that you could, you know, transmit the virus. Well, I guess relating this back over to sales, like are people selling? How is the economy doing right now? Are people able to meet face to face yet? How is that evolving? Yeah. So as far as the economy, it's actually doing worse, in my opinion, than most of the media is portraying. So I think a lot of the news is painting a pretty rosy picture of China. And although it's like gotten back to normalcy, and by normalcy, I mean like you can go out, uh, restaurants are open again. We see a lot of caution from consumers in general. A lot of the big gathering places are still not open. So movie theaters are not open. Any sporting event is not open yet. Uh, Any big event is also not open. So yes, there's parts of the economy that are slowly getting back on track, but other parts are not. And anecdotally, I have a friend that runs a few restaurants in Shenzhen, where I live, in a close city, Guangzhou. And he says that his sales are down 60% still, and they're kind of not rebounding. So his sales are not like week on week improving. They're kind of like really stagnant, and they're staying low compared to his normal sales. So I would say the economy is relatively dire, and it's going to get worse before it gets better for sure. The layoffs are increasing at a really unfortunate and sad pace here. Is there an unemployment problem resulting there as well? Yeah, there is. And specifically with the way that China has uh, approached the um, stimulus after the, the the virus is very different from the U.S. So uh, China has actually not given any funding to companies nor stimulus to individuals in the forms of uh, payment like the U.S. for unemployment or uh, we see a lot of the small business uh, lending that the government's giving right now in the U.S. China has actually given nothing. (laughs) And so it's actually much more, let's say, a core in its capitalist uh, type method that they're using here, which is the weaker companies are, are dying, absolutely, and the stronger are surviving. And they're kind of rebuilding their system on that premise. So they're allowing weaker, less capitalized companies to fail here. Um, and they're actually not doing anything about it. Have some of the travel restrictions been lifted or are people still extremely wary about or even able to get on trains and planes? Yeah, you can now get back on trains and planes, but I would say in general, people are very weary. So from a like a sales perspective, you know, are people going intercity from one city to another to like visit clients? I would say in general, no, unless it was an incredibly important meeting or critical to be there. So in general, we're not seeing a lot of the business travel really pick up yet, even at this time. So I would imagine that still going forward, a lot of our kind of sales calls, a lot of our communication with our customers will still be remote or, uh, you know, through conference calls. I'm going to transition to one last topic that we haven't talked about, which is how someone who grew up in Connecticut actually ended up in southeastern China. Can you share a little bit about how that happened? Tell me a little bit about how that got going. 
Yeah, so I feel like it kind of comes full circle here now because I actually graduated from the University of Connecticut in 2008, right during the last crisis that we had. And at that time, you know, the job prospects were not terribly great. And also, I didn't kind of know what I wanted to do with my life, you know. So I actually went off and left the U.S. and started traveling around the world just to kind of, I guess you could say, to find myself. (laughs) And um, I spent a year in Europe uh, working and traveling. And then I went and I had a friend in Asia. And he told me at the time, you got to come out to Asia. Everything's happening here. The economy's growing like crazy. The culture is incredible. You just got to see it. And I went from Europe over to the Middle East, India, and then Taiwan at the time. And when I arrived in Asia, I just kind of fell in love with it. I just loved the speed, the pace of growth, and the culture. It's just so different from the West. And so that's when I started studying Chinese. And I studied Mandarin for a year in Taiwan and a year in Beijing. And after that, I worked for one of the largest Chinese state-owned manufacturers managing their export market to the U.S. So I actually worked for the Chinese government at one of their industrial manufacturing facilities. And that's kind of how I like got involved in China and became very understanding of how business is done here. When you were in college, did you, or even before that, did, did you have any foreign language exposure or kind of interest in Asian culture? And This is a great question because actually um, I'm terrible at languages <laughs> and I actually don't even like studying languages, but I knew that I kind of like fell in love with the area or the part of the world. And I thought at the time that China was going to become a larger, more important power in the world. And I wanted to kind of do business and be a part of it. And for me, like the very base to be able to communicate and to do business with people and to sell people stuff, right, is to speak their language. I mean, literally speak their language. And so I studied just so that I can become a more unique and powerful like person doing business in China than the average Westerner would be. And that was really my goal from studying. And I spent two years of like pain because I honestly didn't enjoy it that much to achieve that so I can do business better in China. Wow. Just to wrap up, what's the most unusual or surprising thing an American would find in China if they were to visit? I just kind of can relate to what I really love about China, which is the never ending optimism of the people. I always think that the U.S. is a generally optimistic country, and I think it is. But I think what people would be surprised in is that actually Chinese people are even more optimistic, I think. And I feel like being in that environment and feeling that energy is like a really powerful force. We all know if we're like around really positive people, we feel good, right? And I get that feeling when I like live and work in China. And I think for me, that's like the most uh, powerful interesting thing that someone coming from the U.S. would be surprised about. Thanks for sharing your wisdom, your experience, your journey. I really appreciate it. Definitely, you know, stay safe. And since you're shipping, hopefully you're shipping, you know, more of those essential goods so the business stays healthy for you. Yep. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. Paige McCauley is our producer. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.